0: So I graduated from college into a recession in 2009.
1: From the financial capital of the world, the opening bell is going to ring in uh,
2: five seconds. And to be honest with you, we wish it wouldn't.
0: During the school year, I remember chatting with some classmates before classes as the stock market was crashing and waves of foreclosures started being reported on the news. We had no idea what this would mean for us soon-to-be grads, but had a good feeling that it might be bad for our jobs in particular. Some of us already had job offers rescinded. I myself moved into a slumlord-operated three-bedroom apartment in Philadelphia with four of my best friends. In the summer months, notably before my student loans payment started, I spent almost all day applying for jobs. I applied for everything that was even remotely in an area where I had skill. College prep teacher? Didn't get it. Data entry in a Philadelphia suburb? Didn't get it. The list went on and on and on. Every day I'd wake up with the same routine, open my computer, read my job rejection letters. We're sorry, but your level of experience is blah, 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 blah. We're sorry, but due to the financial crisis, this position is yada, yada, yada. Then I'd go to a job site and spend all day tailoring a pretty bare resume coupled with a pretty poorly written cover letter to whatever set of five to 10 jobs I was shooting for that day. Finally, I struck gold. Well, I guess I struck nickel or aluminum foil. I landed a salaried job doing entry-level fundraising for a big national nonprofit. I suppose the job would have been minimum wage had it only been the standard 40-hour work week, but because it was salaried and a pretty crappy work environment, it was more like 60 hours a week. At first, I was so thrilled to have a job at all. I could buy groceries and the occasional beer without begging my already broke parents to send me 20 bucks here or there. Then I realized... I wasn't actually making enough money to live. After my rent and transit fare to work, I was actually losing money. In a moment of desperation, I'd go online and look for side hustles or other ways to make money in the few hours I had outside of my job. During one of these searches, I came across a very enticing link. I could, with no money down and no collateral, get up to $5,000 in 24 hours. Everything inside of me lit up. $5,000 at that point was my equivalent of $1 million. I could pay my rent for a year, or I could buy monthly transit passes. Maybe I could use some of that money to buy some new clothes and go on an interview for a better paying job. It even said it was no interest if I made all the payments. I came very close to doing this. Please understand, I was a young, stupid, desperate 22-year-old. I happened to mention this harebrained scheme to a friend of mine, and I saw all of the life leave their face do not do anything with these people. Welcome to episode two of Indebted, a podcast about debt and race in America. I'm your host, Maurice BP Weeks, a lifelong economic and racial justice organizer. Each episode, we'll tackle a different aspect of debt, exploring how it works and why it spells bad news for black people in our entire economy. In this episode, we're digging into payday lending. Brace yourselves, this is a particularly seedy industry. So I didn't end up taking out that loan. Eventually, mostly through luck, I found myself out of the crappy job I was in and out of that crappy financial position I was in. And later, I'd learn enough about the payday loan industry to be extremely glad that I didn't. In talking to my one friend that steered me away from disaster, I learned his mom saw a similar ad in an even bigger moment of desperation to save her house, and jumped on it. But the positive quickly turned negative from there. Other bills kept piling up, and she couldn't make enough money to pay them all, plus the new payday loan. She ended up missing payments, taking on new loans to cover the original loans, and getting stuck with more and more debt. Eventually, she lost her home anyway. It had been two years and they were still working to pay off the original loan. Her credit was shot for the foreseeable future and my friends didn't look too great either as he had stepped in to help. The payday lending industry is worth about $20 billion a year in revenue, according to industry reports. You may think of this as an age-old industry. I mean, people have been charging exorbitant interest with threats behind them for ages. Ever watch, well, any mob show? I'll have your money next week. That
1: wasn't the deal. I'll be back tomorrow. Don't make me a jerk off.
0: But when it comes to actual financial service organizations, the payday lender is really the product of good old late 20th century deregulation. In a nice alley from President Carter to President Reagan, the late 70s and early 80s saw the beginning of a trend towards massive deregulation of the rules that had guided the financial system since the New Deal. You may be surprised to hear President Carter's name as one of the main proponents, but it was the beginning of a shift that aligned the Democratic and Republican parties on the idea of market-based neoliberalism or the lack of government controls that kept the biggest banks from getting out of hand. The Money Control Act of 1980 and later the Depository Institutions Act of 1982 did so much heavy lifting for the future of predatory banking Succumbing to the pressure of decades of lobbying, things like interest rate caps or lending requirements were shunned in favor of free market capitalism at both the state and federal levels. And it was clear who would be harmed by this shift. There was a new set of financial resources flowing through the economy. From the period of 1940 to 1970, the economic reality of black Americans improved dramatically. The income gap for black men closed by about a third... College enrollment of black people went up, life expectancy went up, home ownership rates went up. There were nearly 40% more black people in the middle class in 1970 as there were in 1940. These increased resources were the perfect target for the banking industry. So much so that it's hard to say that the shift in banking wasn't at least caused in part by the new black economic advancement. And boy, did the payday lending industry take advantage. It went from an industry in the shadows to literally one on your corner. By recent count, there are more than 23,000 payday lenders. For context, think of how often you might see a McDonald's when you're driving around. Industry reports say that there are 10,000 more payday lenders than there are McDonald's in the United States. It's totally mind-boggling. An industry with that many storefronts, unsurprisingly, has an enormous customer base. 12 million Americans take out payday loans every year. Across those loans, those 12 million Americans pay about $9 billion in interest. That's billion with a B. And unsurprisingly, you don't see payday lenders on the streets of white suburbs or in well-to-do middle-class areas, but drive in any black neighborhood and you'll likely lose count of how many payday lenders you see. In case you don't know, payday loans are marketed as a bridge loan between paydays. If an expense comes up that you would be able to meet in a few days, this gives you the financial flexibility to do so immediately for a fee and a massive amount of interest. But, as you may imagine, that is in fact not how it works. People who take out payday loans are in debt with that specific loan for an average of five months of the year. And the notion of just a bridge loan for emergency expenses? Not really. 70% of borrowers use the loans for just regular, everyday household expenses, like rent or utilities. I wanted to talk to someone who knows a lot more about this issue than I do. An activist in Michigan, my home state, just ran a campaign to change the laws around payday lending. So I spoke to a leader from that campaign.
1: My name is Jessica Ackmoody. I'm the policy director at the Community Economic Development Association, or CEDAM, as it's better known.
0: Well, thanks for chatting with me about... Probably not the most fun topic, but one that I think we're both super, super interested in. So, I'm wondering if you can tell us, you know, what initially got you interested in working on issues of payday lending?
1: Sure. Uh, So, CDOM is a nonprofit membership organization, and our members are working around the state on community-based economic development. So a lot of that is uh, focused on affordable housing and various economic inclusion programs around the state. And I would say about eight years ago, uh, there was some legislation introduced at the state level to expand payday lending offerings in Michigan um, and do larger loans and actually use auto titles to secure the loans. So we got pulled into working on it uh, at that point in time and kind of realized there was no real statewide effort looking at the issue. And it was a big void that we had in Michigan. So. Um, my organization, uh, a lot of our members who are doing financial counseling and financial empowerment saw clients come in that had gotten into huge problems with payday lending, and it was just really devastating them financially and emotionally. And so we decided that it was an area that we really needed to get involved in.
0: That's, yeah, that's that's really great. I think it's a, a similar story to a lot of how a lot of people fall into this policy work, um, And I know that that payday lending is often referred to as, you know, the the debt trap once you get ensnared in it. So that makes perfect sense. And I'm curious if you could just, can you talk a little bit about some of the impacts of payday lending that you have seen or heard at the time from communities, of course, overall, but uh, particularly by race?
1: Sure. Um, So as we started to study the Problem, you know, and I started to look at it from a personal level. I found that the typical payday loan in Michigan carries fees equivalent to about 370% APR, which is just staggering to wow. me. Um, wow. And, you know, and how is this legal? Uh, but, anyways, um, we uh, partnered with a Center for Responsible Lending um, to do a report in 2018. And we mapped all the payday lending stores in Michigan. And what we found is that payday stores are concentrated higher in census tracts that have more African Americans and Latinos. Um, We also found that they they drain an average of $100 million in fees a year from Michigan's economy. And, you know, those are kind of the high-level things that we know and that we see. But on a ground level, a lot of our members have stories. We work with a really great grassroots organization in Grand Rapids called Project Green. And the individual stories that people have that come in and tell who are trying to get out of these loans is is just pretty – it's gut-wrenching, quite honestly. So we see the drain on communities. We see the drain on families. And as I said, you know, disproportionately located located in communities of color and low income communities around the state.
0: You know, you mentioned interest over 300 percent. And I know a a lot of folks listening might have your question as well of how is this legal? So with the papers that folks sign, are they do they list that the interest will be 300 percent? Like how do how do we get to that much interest for an individual loan?
1: I mean, yeah, they list it in very small type at the bottom of the papers. Uh, So in this state, we actually did not legalize loan into payday lending until 2008. We were the last state in the country to do so. And it's actually a carve out. So instead of calling it APR, they call it fees per hundred dollars. So they're able to charge... $15 $15 for the first hundred, fourteen for the second, and so on. Um, and those loans are due back in two weeks. So if you take out a $600 loan in two weeks, you have to pay back uh, around $677. So if you do the math on that, it averages out to an APR of about $360. But like I said, it's a legal carve-out. Um, they don't have to abide by the Regulatory Loan Act, which all other lending entities have to in the state. So it's just a special carve-out for payday lenders.
0: Wow. So I have lots of questions about how that carve out <laughs> came to be, of course, um, and my, my guess is, but I'm wondering if, if the ballot initiative campaign um, that CEDEM and, and other folks helped to run was trying to close that loophole, and if you could tell us a little bit about what the campaign uh, tried to accomplish and, and really what it would have meant for the average person in Michigan.
1: So currently, there are 20 states that cap interest rates on these small-dollar loans at 36% or less. And uh, most recently, actually, just at the beginning of the month, Minnesota uh, passed it legislatively and the governor just signed it. And we find in those states that have those interest caps that instead of limiting access to capital, people have um, just as many options, actually, because we see more organizations Uh, stepping up and offering responsible small dollar loans to fill the void left by payday lenders. Um, We know that 70% of payday borrowers in Michigan re-borrow the same day they pay off a previous loan. So ultimately, what we're trying to do is stop that cycle of debt and provide products that help rather than harm people.
0: Wow. 70% re-borrow on the day that they pay it back, you said? So folks are just, they have another expense coming right behind yeah, so once you
1: take out the loan, 70% are just reborrowing, and then it just becomes a consistent debt trap. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com convergencemag Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system, one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening.
0: So I know that Michigan uh, is trying to get it through the state legislature now after some shenanigans kept it off of, off <laughs> of the ballot. And so it would, it would also cap our interest rates at 36%. I imagine you expect a good amount of opposition to this, uh, seeing as though it was kept off of the ballot. Who is the opposition for capping payday loans at 36%?
1: That's a great question. Um, so far in my eight years of working on this issue, the only opposition we've encountered has been the payday lenders themselves. Um, the top three payday lenders in Michigan are actually based out of state. They're headquartered out of state. Uh, they're in Ohio. And then Advanced America is actually owned by a, a Mexican company, I believe. The top names we're running into is Advanced America, um, access financial which runs check and go i would say those are the two big ones i mean we see a little bit from like local payday lenders but they're not as prevalent in the state as the big out of state guys are it's a really interesting issue it's it's bipartisan we have faith based organizations we have social justice organizations all in favor of this but the payday lenders you know sometimes they're talking points with people work uh, sometimes they say this is the only option people have if you put a cap on it, they'll close up shop. What will people do for money? They'll go to loan sharks. It won't be regulated. Um, but we really haven't seen that play out in other states that have put the rate cap in. So I think what we're really up against are the payday lenders and, as you know, their money. They have a lot of money and a lot of lobbyists.
0: Yeah. What's, what's the impact of those lobbyists? Like, are there commercials that they run? Do you talk to politicians that just parrot right back their phrasing from their website? Or, yeah, what's the impact?
1: Yeah, we we get a lot of parroting back of the payday lenders talking points and that's the main the main influence they have I think. You know, they they donate a lot of money to campaigns, they donate a lot of money to legislators. So in the past we've been up against that kind of.
0: So to play devil's advocate here, I'm I'm wondering what you say to folks that say and this this I know this the payday lenders say this, but I will say it's not just payday lenders who who I've heard saying this, that, hey, you know, this is not a perfect system. Nothing in our economy is perfect. But this resource of payday lending, it helps poor people and black people and working people, um, folks who might have a hard time opening a bank account, like undocumented folks, who are all underbanked in some way. Um, and the reason that it costs more is because it's riskier to those lenders, but it is doing the service of bringing banking to a severely under, underbanked population. What is, what is the retort for that?
1: I, you know, I think there's a point that there are certain populations that can't access capital as easily as they should be able to. But I don't think the answer to that is to allow predatory products to be marketed to them. Uh, 75% of payday lenders revenue comes from borrowers caught in 10 loans per year. So the whole model of the system is to trap people in debt and not let them out. You know, we had uh, someone testify to the legislature once. He had taken out a $600 loan. He couldn't pay it back. He took out another one. He was basically paying $150 every two weeks on the fees, had not touched his $1,200 in principal and had been doing it for two years, and he ended up closing his bank account. So it's actually making the problem
0: worse. Yeah. And to be to be clear, in states that have capped this interest rate, do we see a, a, like a massive shutting down of payday lenders? I think that they still exist in those states as well. Right. They're just not allowed to do this interest rate gouging. Is that right?
1: They exist in some of the states, I think, um, you know, sometimes they change their lending model and make their loans for a longer period of time to get under that 36 percent APR there are a lot of states that they just decide to close up shop. Uh, so it kind of depends on where they are and the exact rules that they're operating under. But what we do see is, for example, in Illinois, um, they legislatively capped this their payday loan rates at 36%. They saw a huge boom in the people applying for lending licenses under their responsible lending laws. So You know, right now we know there are nonprofits and credit unions out there and banks that are offering small dollar loans at non-predatory rates, but they really can't compete with the payday lender's marketing dollars and um, just prevalence in communities.
0: Okay, uh, so this is a podcast that's primarily about debt and race, so of course I have to ask about how this is a racial justice issue. We touched on it a little bit already, but How do you see this issue growing from or benefiting from already existing issues of systemic racism in our economy?
1: That is an excellent question. Um, I think that it absolutely does grow and benefit from systematic racism. I would argue that you can find most payday lending stores in communities that were redlined in the past. Um, And the discriminatory practices of redlining forced many you know, blacks to live in communities with low equity growth, and payday loans target those communities, which only further widens the wealth gap. You know, we also, they also found in a study in 2021 by the University of Houston Law Center that payday lending industry often targets Black and Latino communities in advertising their products, while mainstream banking industry targets white consumers. So you even see that marketing difference um, according to race there. And then... You know, it, if you have one community over here paying no more than 20% to borrow money, and you have another community that is paying three and 400% minimum, the community paying higher rates will never get out of poverty. And if, you know, like I said, those stores are located in communities of color. So I would say it's, this all is tied up into uh, systematic racism in our banking economy.
0: Yeah. What's the end game here Jessica like what's the what's the long-term win like I want communities to be able to have access to credit um, but I don't want people paying you know three four or five hundred percent in interest so what what's the longer term solution how do we how do we stop this practice as a whole
1: That's a really big question <laughs> but um, <laughs> I would say you know we've talked about how predatory payday lending is but I think it's actually the symptom of a bigger problem to be honest with you we need to take a close look at the systems our our banking is operating in in this country and you know why all things being equal to black and hispanic borrowers qualify less often for mortgages and loans and how are we assessing the worth of homes and what are we basing credit checks on and i could go on and on but i think ultimately we need systematic change in our financial system so I think limiting what payday lenders can charge is a great step, but I think this is all interconnected to the racial wealth gap and how our financial system is set up in general.
2: I'm curious like what most folks
0: use the money that they take out in a payday loan for, if we know some statistics or anything about that,
1: we do actually. Uh, you know, they're marketed as a quick fix for uh, short-term emergencies, but what we see is a majority of the people are taking them out to pay their living expenses. They're buying food, they're paying their utility bills. You know, so I think uh, along with talking about a systems change in our financial system, we really need to talk about wages. And living wages and making sure people are making enough to be able to pay their everyday bills.
0: Yeah. I wonder if there's, if there, if you've heard about aggressive collection practices from payday lenders, like if there's, I know folks get the phone calls, like, are there other, yeah, what does, what does collection look like for, for payday lenders when folks truly cannot pay?
1: I think, well, it starts with, in the beginning, they have direct access to their bank account. So they can pull that money as soon as that loan is due, uh, not taking into account if the people have paid any of their other bills. Um, A lot of people end up closing their bank accounts because they keep getting all of their money taken out or getting dinged by fees. So we have banked people who then end up unbanked. And then after that, I think they, from what I've heard, they really start the aggressive calls to people. And I've heard we had someone tell us that they they started calling her relatives, too.
0: Is there anything else that we should know about payday lending and specifically as it relates to communities of color, Black communities, um, before we wrap up?
1: Um, I think what we're trying to do along with instituting this rate cap is really do more education around it. Um, the communities where payday lenders are located are cut off a lot of times from traditional banking services. Although you do have to have a bank account or a credit union account to take out a payday loan, we still know you know, it's it's much easier to go down to the corner store and walk out in 10 minutes with that money in your pocket than to go through what you have to go through at banks or credit unions to get a loan. So I think a lot of it is an education piece. A lot of it is trying to make people more comfortable in traditional banking world. Um, and so, along with, you know, we're not just trying to limit predatory lending APRs, we're also trying to do that educational piece, get people connected to mainstream financial service system, and also look at what those uh, financial service systems are based on and what changes need to be made.
0: Great. How can people keep up with Sedum's uh, work?
1: Uh, you can check us out online. It's cedamichigan.org, michiganorg And we have a variety of coalitions. Uh, we work on affordable housing. Like I said, we work on economic inclusion. And we have the Michigan Coalition for Responsible Lending. Check out our website. If you want to get involved, my email's on there. Feel free to shoot me an email. I'm happy to loop you into the work we're doing.
0: Awesome. Well, this has been super informative, Jessica. I know I, I learned a lot and I felt like I already knew a lot. So I'm sure that other folks probably did as well. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Jessica really paints a terrifying picture of what payday lending looks like in a state that doesn't have some of the regulations currently in the toolbox of advocates around the country. But sadly, the push that she was leading to get some of these regulations in place, as you heard, faced immense opposition and ultimately failed. I wanted to hear from someone on the side of the opposition who wasn't an industry insider. When the statewide debate on payday lending regulation took place in 2019, a local economist published an op-ed in Bridge Magazine that claimed there was no problem with payday loans, but in fact, they were a good thing. The op-ed is titled, I'm an Economist, and I support payday loans, so I called him up.
2: I'm the William Simon Professor of Economics and Public Policy. Uh, my name is Gary Wolfram, and I live and teach at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan.
0: Great, just about a uh, ninety minutes away from where I'm where I'm sitting right now. Um, although it looks very different than than uh, New Center, Detroit. Uh, Really good to have another Michigander on the show. Your primary focus in economics, can you talk about some of the things that you uh, have worked on in the past?
2: Uh, Yeah, my primary focus is on uh, what we might call public policy. Uh, I'm interested in, and I teach a course called Public Choice, Uh, which uses economic analysis to look at how government works. Um, But some of the things that I've worked on in the past, in particular, is taxation policy. Uh, I've done work on uh, Michigan's uh, single business tax, and it's now... turned into a corporate income tax. And I've done, uh, I was on the uh, State Board of Education in Michigan for a number of years. I've done some work on school choice, uh, charter schools, and issues like that. I've also done some work on uh, insurance regulation, particularly with regard to uh, life insurance. A number of different issues, but all public policy oriented.
0: Yeah, it's a wide ranging set of issues. And uh, the reason we connected is because I uh, know that you've done some work or at least some, some thinking on payday lending. I'm wondering if you could just uh, really just explain what payday lending is and why it's primarily used.
2: Yeah, uh, there's no strict definition of payday lending, but essentially payday lending is a short-term lending for normally $500 or less. Um, It's usually something in Uh, you get a loan until your next payday comes up, which is why it's called payday loaning, Uh, or it might be uh, a defined time as two weeks. Um, Each state has different regulations on that. There's uh, 16 states that don't allow for uh, this type of loan, but essentially it's a short-term loan for a, a limited amount, as I said, usually $500 or less, and they're called what's unsecured. That is, I don't have to put up any collateral, uh, and there's oftentimes no credit check. Uh, You can just get it. It's basically a fee for getting a loan that you pay back at your next payday or within a two-week period.
0: So I know the state of Michigan has several times tried to restrict this practice, and um, that includes via uh, an attempted ballot measure uh, last year. Wow, I can't believe that was just last year. And I found in 2019, you wrote an article criticizing this attempt at, at regulation and restriction. And I'm wondering why you could uh, explain a little bit more about um, the argument against uh, these restrictions that you that you had in your uh, opinion
2: piece. Well, uh- for a number of reasons, but primarily, this is the only way that some people can obtain loans. Um, it turns out that a large uh, number of people are what's called unbanked. They don't have a checking account, they don't have a savings account, and they don't have a mechanism to get a loan. Like, you know, you and I could probably just, you know, go to our local I go to County National Bank or whatever uh, here in Hillsdale, and I could get a loan from them. But if you are someone that is impoverished, uh, then you won't have access to that. And let's say um, you have uh, a payment that's due on your car, and your car is going to be uh taken away, if you don't make that payment, uh, then this gives you an opportunity to go out and say, okay, uh, I'll get my $500 and I will make my payment on my car. And then when my payday comes, I can go ahead and, uh, and pay it back. I mean, sometimes the, you, you look at credit cards uh, are like that. If everyone never looked at their credit card, uh, what one thing that you can do is not Pay it back, right? You you run up your balance, but if you ever notice, that's an eighteen uh, percent rate that you have to pay on that. Uh, and so, but a lot of a lot of people might not be uh, in an economic situation where they can be given a credit card. Uh, so this is an opportunity for people who are. Impoverished, and they're in a situation where they need to have a small amount of money for a short period of time. I'm glad you brought up
0: credit cards because I'm I'm wondering if uh, if payday loans, this type of loans, are are extremely unique. That that, in other words, are there examples of other financial instruments that could be compared to payday loans? But don't receive the same amount of public ire. Maybe credit cards are are one of those.
2: Yeah, I mean that's what I was thinking about. Is that uh, uh you know credit cards can work this way in that you could buy something, uh and then you can't make your payment to when when it becomes due, uh and so then you can just, uh, uh you know pay a minimum. But they actually require you to pay a minimum amount uh but then the rest gets carried over at uh, a high interest rate but people don't usually talk about that it's not as uh you know it's 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 not as out in front of people as uh, as payday loans are that's super
0: helpful i'm wondering if in in your opinion there should be any are there any reasonable restrictions that we should and could have on consumer lending pro- products um I mean, I'm just imagining if I, if I opened a bank, Maurice Bank, and said, all right, we're giving out $100 loans to everyone, no credit check, but it's going to start at a 200% APR. Obviously, that could not happen. I couldn't start a bank, for one, and uh, maybe not that many people would would be comfortable banking with someone whose background is not in banking. But but should there should that kind of thing be restricted? Should there be any kind of restrictions on on consumer lending products?
2: Well, the uh, the main restriction I would have is that it has to be clarity that there would be no hidden fees. That when I Go ahead and choose to take this, you know, payday loan or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, that I know what I'm what I'm buying. One of the things that you have to realize is that people who are uh, getting these loans are oftentimes uh, in a financial situation where the probability of they're not paying back is higher than it is for a normal person. So the people that are making these loans have to take into account that uh, there's gonna be some default rate. Um, in addition, there's usually a fixed cost to putting together one of these things, and so that fee that pays for the, the charge for processing this whole thing uh, is not spread out over a 10-year period or a, fifth or a 30-year period like you might have with a mortgage. It's only spread out over a two-week period. And so it will look like the if you do uh, APR requirements, it'll look like APRs are very high, um, but it is because it's only for such a short period of time, uh, and so the you, you have to you know take account both that these people are more likely to not. Pay the loan back than the average person, the, and you're doing it for a short period of time, and so we would expect to see those rates uh, high. But on the other hand, it you should be clear th- that when you, uh, you know, here's what you're getting when you take one of these payday loans. I mean, the clarity is important. So I, I'm
0: I'm I'm glad you brought up the the folks who get into these situations where they're taking out these loans, um, and I I want to play. Uh, devil's advocate a little bit here and I know that there are critics who would say to to you that hey, you know people more often than than uh, with other financial instruments end up in really rough financial positions because of these because of these loans. And when you break it down, it has a disproportionate, Impact on you know a particularly vulnerable population. We're talking about poor folks or working folks or the underbanked um, or black and Latino folks. It, how would how would you respond to that criticism? I know you're not you know you're, you're you're not speaking on behalf of the industry or or your institution, but I'm just curious how I'm sure you've heard that come up before, and and what you think the the response is to that.
2: Yes, well the problem is these people are in dire situations. And if you don't allow them to borrow the money, then how does that improve their situation?, uh, their car gets repossessed or they get kicked out of their uh, their uh, rental apartment. It's you know we we can't compare it to the average everyday person uh, who has a bank. Uh, but there's a number of people who don't have a bank account uh, and they don't have another alternative. So you if we say no, you can't get a payday loan, uh, then what what's your alternative? Your, you know, your car gets taken away, you get kicked out of your apartment. Uh, you know for us, it's hard to imagine that, but uh, if I, if there's a number of people out there that is this is their only opportunity, uh, and so I would I would say, um, not allowing them this opportunity is not in their best interest.
0: mm hmm but is there, is there a chicken and egg problem here? Like, I'm wondering if, you know, is the population risky to lend to because they have more expensive financial instruments, or do they have more expensive financial instruments because they are risky to lend to? Do you, does that make sense as a, as a question?
2: Yeah, yes. And I think that this is a, as I said, you know, mentioned before, this is a vulnerable population, and they've gotten themselves into a, a less than optimum uh Economic situation, uh, but the I would I would say that they are the ones that are most in need of these these payday loans. Uh, it is possible that okay, then I can't pay that payday loan back, and so I'm going to take out another payday loan, and it's possible that those things will uh, pile up. But the same thing could happen with your credit card. You could have a a credit card, and a lot of times they'll allow you a pretty substantial limit on what your credit card balance can be. Uh, And so it's not really a matter of payday loans getting these people into this situation. They're clearly in a situation that can best be solved by increasing their productivity by making it so that they have better education, making it so that they have better uh, skill training, not necessarily a, a, you know, I teach at a college, so you think of college education, but now—but maybe they go to mechanic school and learn to be a mechanic. That—that uh, That is a mechanism that you would use to get them out of that situation, rather than saying, uh, no, you, you know, you, you don't have an alternative. You're just gonna have to be kicked out of your apartment or or lose your car.
0: Is increased banking in in particular areas another uh, another solution there? I mean you're talk- a, a lot of this un- population is underbanked. I'm wondering if we you know is there a way to compel more traditional banks like you know chase or et cetera to uh, do more business in some of the underbanked communities?
2: I would not say that the government should be out there telling Chase Bank who they should be lending to. Uh, and so that, that, is, that is a problem. But you, you, you could have charitable contributions. You could have uh, charities that open up a bank... Uh, and not charge people this much, or perhaps not charge them at all, uh, and so I would look to charity uh you know charitable organizations to substitute for payday loans as an alternative. A lot of people are probably unfamiliar with this system, and if you could if you could adver- somehow advertise to charities, that's that would would perhaps get them to do that. I mean, I get advertisements from Catholic relief services and uh, all sorts of different uh, organizations that are are helping out the poor and asking me to contribute and so perhaps uh, you would have a charitable you know if we could have a way to let people know of the problem out there I to tell you the truth, up until I started to get involved in this at all, I had no idea. Like, if you asked me 15 years ago what payday loans were, or when I was in college, what a payday loan was, I would have no idea, uh, or didn't even know that they existed, or that this was going on. So, until it became something that uh, w- was in, in in the public arena, I had not I did not know about it. So I'm thinking that if what you did was you had more more advertising for charities to let them know this is a problem, then I'm I think that perhaps charities would, would develop uh in the same way that uh uh the other charities that are out there have developed.
0: Yeah, and I, I suppose that's that would be similar to like um I feel like Maybe this was fifteen years ago. This was uh, a huge economic study trend in in uh, microfinancing and the work of the of lots of charities in in that particular uh, particular area. So it would be the the same type of thing that mm-hmm. you know, folks with big money come in to kind of secure this secure with uh you know with their mission statements. Really, this uh, this type of lending instrument.
2: Yeah, that would be. That would be the uh, the way that you you would go. I mean, I get St. Joseph's Indian School and all sorts of things yeah. that come to me every day in the mail. And uh, once and then once I've given to them, then I get callbacks. You know, I get I get uh, something in the mail. It seems like once a month from. <laughs> these different charities. I get. I have a hundred, twenty, twenty-four calendars that come to me because I donated to, to whatever it was. <sighs> yeah, yeah, totally
0: same. Totally same. I'm wondering if there's there's anything else on on this topic that you feel like is uh, something that folks maybe misunderstand or don't properly understand about uh, about these lending products that we haven't touched on.
2: Um, I think we've covered most everything, but I think uh, a good part of it is seeing and observing. Uh, A good part of it is noticing that if you don't provide this alternative to people, then what's going to happen? Uh, And it's not that, okay, if you don't provide this alternative, that somehow uh, they will now be wealthier. Uh, They're still going to have whatever problems that they had. Before they took out the payday loan, and so I think the what we really should be focusing on is how can we improve people's productivity? How can we make it so that they uh, have uh, better job opportunities? And that really comes down to uh, to training and uh, learning, like learning how to use a backhoe or something like that.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Professor Wolfram, we're, uh, I, I started off before we started that we're, we're two economics nerds and we, we, only, we only dipped into incentives and APRs and things a couple of times. So hopefully this will still be still be listenable for most of our audience. Um, uh, Professor Gary Wolfram, thank you so much for for joining me and chatting with me. This has really been a pleasure.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Here's the thing. Professor Wolfram is right about the fact that the clientele of payday lenders are often underbanked. But in this case, I don't think that the solution that we currently have is the right one. At the end of the day, allowing payday lenders is a policy choice. Expanding the social safety net so that fewer payday lenders are needed could also be a policy choice. Forcing traditional banks to serve more communities could be a policy choice. And yes, capping the amount of interest and sheer Scrooge McDuck-like profits that these companies make could also be a policy choice. In fact, Minnesota just did that in 2022. It brings us back to a common story of indebtedness with black people in America. In a situation where there are many ways to deal with debt, we tend to lean towards the profit-centered way and a way that not only keeps black people in debt, but accelerates the rate at which they spin into debt. Proponents of payday loans say increased interest and fees are a way for lenders to cover their risk. But that is literally what a safety net is supposed to do. That's what unemployment does. That's what Medicare does. The list goes on and on. Letting private companies bleed off profit at black and poor people's expense is just unacceptable. Hopefully, campaigns like the one led by Jessica in Michigan and elsewhere continue to expand.
2: It's a question of economics.
0: Economics? My thanks again to Jessica Ackmoody and Professor Gary Wolfram for joining me this episode. Indebted is produced and published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon member of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at... Patreon.com slash Convergence Mag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This show is produced by Josh Elstro. It's written and hosted by me, Maurice BP Weeks. Until next time, let's keep fighting for the world we all deserve.